This podcast features discussions around potentially triggering material, such as the alt-right, Nazis, misogyny, and trauma. Please consider if this is the right podcast for you to listen to. Also, a disclaimer. Please do not consider the contents of this podcast praxis for trying to address these problems. And also, don't try and address these problems if you're not in a good place to do so, or it would affect the safety of yourself or others. Thank you. It took a while to talk Robbie away from the edge and let him know that there weren't sides in this conversation, but that there were lines, and that he'd crossed one, even if he hadn't meant to. So you arranged a time to hang out, out of game, get to know him better. He's not a huge social butterfly, but he jumped at the chance, just to hang out a bit. At the table, Robbie is, when he's comfortable, in his element. He's pretty quick with a joke, and almost kind of charming. Off the table, though, Robbie does struggle to talk with you, A lot of what you talk about are pretty basic things. Movies, books, music, and the latest cliffhanger in that comic book-based show that both of you are watching. Robbie's pretty comfortable there too, animated even. You can definitely see some intelligence and creativity, especially around some of his fan theories. But the second you get away from these things, Robbie's ability to engage is kind of limited. He doesn't always seem to get when you want to start talking about him and a lot of your attempts to ask about his life away from pop culture seem to go awry. He doesn't want to talk about a lot of it, and you suspect some fairly serious level trauma. But what do you know? You're just a dungeon master, not a therapist. Unless you are actually a therapist listening, in which case please do feel free to at me with suggestions and questions. That'd be great, thanks. And trying to fix another human being while trying to take care of yourself is not really what you feel comfortable trying to do. You do, however, somewhat eventually get through Robbie's attempts to deflect with humor and references, and you learn more about him. Yeah, he's had it rough, and uh, from what you can tell, he's dealing with it as best he can. You chat a little longer, and he decides he's okay to continue with the group, and you agree. The next few sessions go well, but it's very close to not okay. Robbie keeps getting very close to the line, and you start to doubt it's as innocent as he keeps saying it is. While no one is saying anything outright, you had the distinct impression someone is about to. It's off the table, though, that the next problem comes from. Robbie and you exchange a lot during these chats. Impressions on the Snyder Cut, theories about Marvel's latest series, and probably way too much meme humor. You notice, though, that a lot of Robbie's memes are approaching mean-spirited. You're not sure how to deal with it until one of the memes crosses a fairly serious line. You decide it might be time for Robbie to have some distance from the table, and you let him know that the group is going to be on hiatus as everyone, including yourself, has way too much on right now. You inform everyone else and tell them not to tell him because you don't want to hurt his feelings. He seems okay, but frustrated. You can tell he's trying to be polite, but you're sure he is extremely upset. You breathe a sigh of relief and try to ignore that sense of foreboding building up in your gut. Before we get started, I wanted to put down an emphasis on keeping our tables as good safe places, 
and just had some excellent things to say about what could have been done better, as well as some really good advice on what could have been done to help work through it. Cool, Jess, I, 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 I'm trying to think, like, rather than me asking a question, um, as far as your input onto what kind of situation Robbie is in and how that dungeon master or gamekeeper, whichever phrase you want to apply to that person, um, would there be anything that you would say to them in what they should do? Assuming mm. they are assuming they are safe, assuming they are in a place where they have the emotional and mental wherewithal to attempt to have difficult conversations with Robbie goes. Yeah. I would engage in um I it looks like a lot of what happened at that table is that it nearly blew up. And then everybody kind of chilled out, had an apology. And then I'm not sure if the game continued, but it seemed like Robbie was not digging things. So instead of waiting until texting afterwards to check in with everybody, I would have done an aftercare session or a debrief after the game. I try and do them after all my games. But... um like a debrief where we talk about like, hey, the game was the game and now we're going to real life. So let's talk about some things that we liked in the game. What didn't we like in the game? You can even do stars and wishes, which is like my favorite things for the game or your MVP and then what you want to happen next time. Or even just like, hey, that got pretty heavy. Let's talk about it. How's everybody doing? <laughs> right. And talk as a group to just hash it out. And if Robbie didn't want to talk, then like that's kind of on him. But if he's not taking part in the aftercare, then I probably wouldn't want to play with him again, which sucks because that leads him to further isolation. But I would also need to just kind of keep my, the rest of my table safe, <laughs> you know? It, uh, yeah. It, it, it's, it's a difficult one because as a dungeon master, you want everyone at the table to be happy and safe. But at the same time, like the worst thing we can do with people, I don't want to say people like Robbie, because I don't just want to say, look, this, you know, we always have to be nice to people who are abusive. Um, Cause that does not work. I think we've seen doesn't work. Mm -hmm. um, but I think we need to potentially be aware of people who can't socialize very well. And, maybe have a level of awareness and as much kindness as we can. It's it. Yeah. I'm sorry. This is why I'm asking people who know far more than me. Well, yeah. And even checking in with him individually, because maybe in another scenario that happens with Bobby and Bobby's not an asshole. Maybe Bobby is neurodivergent in some way. And Bobby didn't realize that what he, the way he was acting was being perceived in a way that he didn't intend. So then maybe Bobby's like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. Please like call me out. Let me know next time, right? Maybe you can work out a signal with Bobby to play next time at the table, right? And mm -hmm. like, he had no idea until you told him. So 
it doesn't always have to be a bad thing. Like it sucks, sucks to suck for Robbie, but <laughs> not everyone it sucks is that a Robbie. You suck, Robbie. <laughs> right, but like not everybody is is that way, and I would just want to talk like as a group. And then if he was still kind of, I might still check in with him individually. And if he'd gotten into it with one specific person, check in with them individually. And then maybe recommend that the two of them hash things out like before the next session. Right. And if one of them was really hurt, then I'd be like, okay, well, then we'll need to address this. I think a lot of us have known someone like Robbie or have been someone like Robbie in our past. That's actually one of the reasons I'm doing this, is I was a lot like Robbie. Social interaction for many of us is a tricky thing. And to be honest, I know many of you out there are happiest when your friends call to cancel the plans that you made. What I don't want to do right now is say you're wrong to feel that way. I don't get to decide what level of social interaction you need on a regular basis. What I'd recommend, though, to all of us, is start connecting with people and maintaining those connections. And I think that merely describing this kind of activity or behavior as antisocial, it's kind of troubling, but Connor was nice enough to help me understand it better. Cool. So Connor, um, looking at Robbie, a very broad definition or description of this person would say he is antisocial. Just like uh, a lot of words in... um in the, my realm of professional experience, I'm a, a mental health counselor. Um, words have different meanings depending on who you're using them with. And, and the broader societal context of antisocial doesn't match up with the professional definition of antisocial. Um, so in, in the broader common parlance, if somebody were to say somebody were antisocial, they might think of somebody who is an extreme introvert or sometimes acted out against other people um, or seemed to be a loner or, or wanted to be left alone. Um, but that's not what we're talking about when we're talking about uh, antisocial in, in the context of, of mental health. Um, ant- antisocial... Uh, behavior is is uh sort of broadly ballooned if it's if it's severe enough under the label of antisocial personality disorder um and the icd-11 uh and the dsm which uses the icd-11 criterion um there there are a number of 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 existing um diagnostics that you would need to to say somebody is antisocial um, you would have it's it's characterized by uh, what they call an enduring disturbance, uh, characterized by problems in the functioning aspects of the self, including identity, self worth, accuracy of self view, and self direction, um, and uh, or interpersonal dysfunction. So, uh, an ability to maintain uh, close and mutually satisfying relationships, and and to understand other people's perspectives and manage conflict. Um, this this is something that you would see over the over a long course of time, at least two years, uh, across broad range of situations uh, that's manifest in cognitions, emotions, both experiencing and an expression, uh, behavior that is maladaptive um, or poorly regulated. Um, that they uh, that these factors can't be explained by social or cultural factors, including socio political conflict. 
um, and that they're not due to the effects of a medication or substance. Um, so most importantly, when we're talking about mental health issues, somebody might display some of these things, but there has to be distress caused by, uh, by uh, the condition. So distress just means that the person finds it difficult to, uh, to engage in, um, in what we would consider typical life experiences. Um, and that causes them stress, worry, doubt. Um, because if a person is behaving in this way, but it doesn't seem to phase them in one bit and they seem to function well in society, then it wouldn't reach, it wouldn't rise to the need of mental health treatment. Um, because a person feels okay. Uh, and and so and so that it's an interesting thing to to point out uh, um, that uh, that you have to have that impairment there. If they function well in the environment that they're in, and it doesn't seem to cause them problems, then you wouldn't seek mental health treatment in the first place. It, it wouldn't rise to the level of diagnostic criterion. I um, so when we're talking when we're talking about Robbie. Hmm. We're talking about Robbie, and we're talking about antisocial, um, antisocial behavior. It's important just to think: Are we talking about that mental health definition, or are we talking about the um, uh, the words that we would use um, just in in common discussion with each other? Um, and I think it's fair to say that, at the very least, uh, in in that common parlance, there are things that Robbie's doing that's creating problems. Uh, for him, just in in the wider context of life, um, in relationships um, and uh, in social roles, and uh, and it's it's affecting his perception of himself, um, and arguably you could say that it's causing him distress and impairment. So, um, so so I think that if you're to say, is Robbie demonstrating antisocial? Um, behavior in the common parlance, certainly, you know, uh, we'd have to dig a little bit deeper for the medical description. And unfortunately I don't have access to his medical records cause I haven't written them yet, but. <laughs> in our last episode, we discussed a lot of themes around radicalization, trauma, and how disaffectation with society can lead a person down some very bad paths. I want to take some time on expanding on what that means when isolation becomes a larger factor in a person's life, and how our emotional responses can affect us in the future. In Jean Twenge's book, I Generation, she points out that teenagers now use their phones far more than the previous generation, and that they have less and less connection time in person with each other. Her book also argues that we see a great deal more mental illness. Now, I don't want to imply here that correlation equals causation in this case. It's completely possible that we are simply better at diagnosing mental illness, and that people are now far more comfortable with being diagnosed and talking about it. I also need to point out that her book was written in 2017, well before we saw the very extreme isolation we've seen recently. I do, however, want to argue that prolonged social isolation does indeed lead to a great many forms of mental illness. Social connections are the foundation of a great deal of what keeps us civilized, and from degenerating into roaming bands of outlaws seeking to pillage the few remaining resources from each other. (laughs) 
I, I realize that's a somewhat over-the-top example, but I would argue that our connection to other people does in fact teach us empathy. Connor and I had a good discussion around empathy and how we develop it. So, so um, there is a, a neurotypical course of development when it comes to how we interact with other people socially. Um, and this is something that because it's, it's, um, it's easy to observe in people, we don't have to look inside the existing brain structures, although we are learning more about the brain structures that are contributing to this, we can see that there's a normal course of human development. And what we do know is that while you can teach empathy and, and through neuroplasticity, um, you, can, uh, you can help develop empathy in other people, the structures that, um, that contribute to empathy don't fully develop until adulthood. Um, there's a certain level of abstract reasoning um, that, that, that needs to be there before you can fully understand what somebody else is, is going through and, and to think about and, f- and feel what they're feeling even though you're not in their experience. Um, and, and that's something, like I said, that develops late in adolescence. Uh, going into adulthood. That's why we often were like, wow, kids are so mean to each other. Well, yeah, because they don't have fully developed senses of empathy yet. They're still very, very fully present in their own experience and can understand that other people have experiences that might differ from theirs and still be fully valid or, or understand their experiences well enough that you can say, well, that's not my experience, but I can see why they feel that way. You, you see that that a lot more in in later adulthood. Um, in the very beginning, people are nothing more than things in your environment, and and they're really not much different from uh, from a toy, <laughs> a desired mm-hmm. toy. Um, it's it's through experiences and interaction and learning and and uh, uh, neurological development that we that we fully get that sense of empathy. And, you know, just like with anything else, any other skill that we develop that is neurological in scope, uh, some people have developed more of it than others. That's normal. Um, it's also true that in our societies, we need certain degrees of empathy to be able to function um, in a way that doesn't cause us distress, right? You know, uh, you, you have to have a reasonable understanding of how other people feel if you're going to if you're going to form families and social groups, um, you know that's that's something that that you need to have there. Um, th- th- this is a question I have to ask, I guess, for my own um, okay. sanity and um, you know hope for humanity in general. Developing empathy, um, how possible is it? To do so, and I don't imagine it's easy. So I don't want to ask. Well, what are the easy ways of doing it? Because that's a stupid question. Um, yeah, but how, how does one help others to develop empathy? Well, um, so a lot of my work um, in education is directed towards actively teaching students empathy, um, and so. We do it through exercises. We do it through practice. It's it's 
you know, I, I, I don't mean to trivialize it, um, but you would learn, uh, you can attempt to teach somebody it the same way you could attempt to teach somebody to play basketball. It just takes repeated exposure, repeated practice, repeated failure with perseverance through the failure, and reflection. Um, so, you know, when you're, when, you're, when you're learning to play basketball, you could have somebody show you, here's the basic stance, here's the things you do. Um, but to a certain degree, you just simply have to practice. And as you fail, you need to try again until eventually you create the neural pathways that you need to consistently move your body in the right way to make those baskets, right? That, that's just what you need to do. And empathy is much the same. Um, you, you, there are things that are going to help as you get older, but you can practice through somebody coaching you. You can practice through experiences. You can practice through reflecting on failures and deciding to try harder, push through the failures, um, and, uh, and reflect so that you can attempt to avoid common mistakes that you're making. I'm a very regular user of Twitter, I'll confess, and at this time of writing have about 2,200 or so followers on my handle of at nerdypeopled. Sorry, shameless plug, I know. And I enjoy the little hits of dopamine I get when a bunch of people like my stuff, or I see a familiar face sending me a DM to chat about something I know. However, I know social media and online connections are good, but I don't think they're supposed to replace our traditional face-to-face connections, and I don't think they should be the only forms of connection we have. Peter and I took some time to discuss this. Um, to, to kind of draw a little bit of a um, analogy, perhaps, uh, there is a story of a hummingbird that, uh, sorry, of a, of a person who put um, like diet right cordial, um, which is like a sugar-free but sweetened cordial into like a hummingbird feeder. And the hummingbirds all came to eat, but unfortunately, because it was sugar-free, it didn't have the caloric input they needed, and it killed them. And my, my like my brain immediately kind of looks at parasocial relationships in a very similar way. It's like, yeah, it'll fill you, but it's not providing you the calories you actually need or the nourishment you need. Well, I, I think that feeds into a much larger issue when we're thinking about social isolation and social media i'm back back before covid i kind of had this revelation that social media is the fast food of socialization it is you know completely commercialized it is full of empty calories yes it's some type of sustenance but it's not meaningful sustenance and it's going to kind of make you have some unhealthy things going on um and i was seeing all these people who were genuinely struggling Twitter in places kind of desperately reaching out and being like, I'm so depressed right now, or I'm going through all this. And my, 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 my thought process on the matter was like, how is Twitter going to help? I you're, you're, you're expressing that you are in a very bad mental place, but the, the, the options are reply directly for everyone to see, which is not a very, a very intimate thing to do. Click like, click retweet. You know, th- th- those aren't very helpful things. 
or, you know, DM a person, which, um, you know, is kind of, it's, it's its own space and it's not necessarily an invited thing. So, um, I, I just started realizing that people are using social media in a very inappropriate way at this point because they're, they're, they're so isolated and they don't know what else to do. Um, and I think that this has gotten so much worse with, with, you know, COVID. Um, and now I think the demonization of social media is a problem because it's like, no, it's all people have at least something. Um, you know, if you're, if you're, you know, in, in a normal place, you know, eating fast food all the time is really bad, but if there's no food out, but there's a McDonald's that just opened, then, you know, eat McDonald's. It's, it's something. Um, so I, I think that when you're talking about uh, kind of social media and how it is a very empty thing, I think it's because people misunderstand the point of social media. And the point of social media isn't necessarily to communicate friends. It is to create content. And that is what it is designed to do. Um, social media these days is all about producing content and you have all these people who come into it thinking, Oh, this is just like a party and I can talk with people. It's just like a, a social space. No, it is a place where people generate content. And so unfortunately it is not a very good place for people to reach out when they need help. And yet a lot of people think that's what it's for. And I think a lot of parasocial relationships, uh, have that occurring where you have, you know, a, a kid that comments on some YouTubers thing and, you know, donates all this money to them. And then will say, Oh, well I, I, I'm his friend. And, you know, he, he talks to me sometimes. So we're, we're, we're friends now. Meanwhile, the, the YouTuber is a content producer, not a friend. So it creates this very, um, very kind of problematic space. And I, I think the unfortunate thing is that for many kids that is, they're, they're so starved for, um, starved for attention and starved for, you know, social interaction that that's what they're gravitating to, but it creates this kind of unfair expectation on a lot of content creators where, you know, I, I have talked to content creators who you know, are rather, rather big and they'll tell me, that they've got people reaching out to them in full-fledged mental health crisis with the expectation that you're my friend, please help, help me to stop being in the state. And it's incredibly stressful. Yeah, that, that, that does sound extremely, that sounds horrifying in a lot of ways. Um, and I, I, I kind of have to maybe provide a little disclosure. I am someone who uh, met his wife um, effectively on social media, like, you know, 15 years ago. Um, but for us, it was really just a stepping stone towards developing a relationship. Yeah. No, I think social media definitely can be a very good place to make friends. I, and I have quite a few friends that I have met and developed and become very close to over social media. And kind of interestingly, a lot of them, or a number of them I've become close to just in this past year because 
it's become this sort of place where since we're all kind of stuck in lockdown, we're spending more time on Twitter, we're talking more. And it's just like, hey, yeah, you're, you're actually this really cool person. We, we, we should go, you know, actually hang out. And I actually had uh, a guy who I, you know, just met a handful of times in person, always in passing. Uh, he really started reaching out to me this last year on Twitter. And in a couple of weeks, we're going to do, you know, he just got vaccinated. We're going to do an in-person game jam where we're going to design an environmental RPG together. And so, you know, it can be useful, but I think what people should understand is social media can be used for a lot of different things, but to rely on it as the only source of socialization. Um, I'm during a pandemic, there's no other option, but it's important to have some reality testing to identify that there, there are limits and the ultimate point of the platform is content creation. Last episode, Connor and I discussed that there are indeed predators looking for vulnerable or isolated people to join groups with fringe or extremist beliefs. Again, our reactions to trauma are the important thing here. Jess helped increase my understanding on reactions and how trauma can affect uh, us on a more personal level. Because I know that, you know, there is the old saying, you know, hurt people hurt people. You know. Not always. (laughs) Yeah, okay, yes. Okay, yeah. Like like any... um, like a lot of times blank. hurt people tend to get hurt again and again and again by other people. By, by the people who did the hurting in the first place, yeah. We're new people. Uh, yes, it is an expression that hurt people hurt people. But that I think that gives an excuse for a lot of um, unkind behavior. Like just because you've been hurt and just because you're in a bad place doesn't make it okay for you to stomp on other people's boundaries or make their like infringe upon their safety make their life worse just because your life is bad (laughs) i'd say that's pretty fair Uh, it'd be it'd be great if more people looked at life that way and said look just just (laughs) because this isn't perfect doesn't mean i've got to yeah um Kind of taking maybe a step back or to the side, um, when looking at trauma, one thing you mentioned was the freeze or friend responses. Mm-hmm. Um, sorry. Yes, thank you for continuing to record, Amalto. Um, looking at other common responses to trauma, um, and, and I realize, again, potentially a responsible question, um, but are there, say, like... I don't imagine it's a binary sense of responses where people no, say, and you don't get do this to or pick. Yeah. You don't get to pick what you're going to have. And that is what personally drives me up the wall when um, I know you're not in the States, but I'm sure you've seen the American rhetoric of, well, how you stop a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun. Or if I'd been there, I would have taken him out when like, you don't know. Even if you had a gun, you don't know how you would respond. You might freeze. You might cry. You might shoot wildly into the crowd and make things worse. 
Like, you don't know when you're in that moment how you're going to respond. And that's why, ideally, law enforcement and the military train so hard. And ideally is doing a lot of heavy lifting right there. But (laughs) to condition uh, a safe response. (laughs) A a safer or learned response. Because, I mean, one one thing I've read is that... um, we as humans, we, we are designed in a design. Okay, design maybe not the perfect word, but you know, please Yay. bear with me. Thank you. Um, but but it seems we have like this ingrained altruism, and a lot of this comes from a book that I I know I need to read. I think it was about the uh, the fires in California, or LA, or San okay. Francisco, um, a heaven made in hell or something. Where the common response to a lot of um, like massive natural disasters is we actually go out of our way to help each other. Mm-hmm. Like we, we seem to say, look, we were fighting yesterday about where the fence is or what color it is. You know, today the fence is on fire. So, look, we've, we've got to work together and put this out or, or it's going to get worse. Is that a – I mean, kind of coming back to those responses, um, to, to be – maybe inappropriately flippant um, and, and to kind of steal a quote from Forrest Gump, it, it kind of seems in some ways that trauma is like a box of chocolates. You don't know what, like your trauma responses rather are like a box of chocolates. You don't know what you're going to get. And I think that I would agree with that, but okay. also specifically with um, like helping with the fire. I think there is typically a wave after or, I mean, in that case, it was during a natural disaster. But there's a difference between my house is on fire right this second. I am in the middle of a fire. And this area is on fire. Dealing with that, like, emotionally for a few minutes and then realizing what you need to do. There's, like, the traumatic split-second emergency disaster thing. And that's where the fight, flight, freezer friend comes in. And then the after effect, like the helping comes when people start to process and do want to help each other. Like there was um, a pretty infamous mass shooting in my neighborhood that made international news a few years ago. And everyone was frozen for the hours that it was occurring um i i was like we had swat in the street like telling us to stay inside but the next day um all of my professors were putting out calls like hey uh any therapist or grad students who are free to do counseling this is where you can meet up this is who you can get in touch with for the victims or families of the victims or anyone who has been affected. So there's a difference between like in the moment, if you leave your house, you might get shot in the face and the afterwards of how can we heal from this? And that's when I think people tend to come together. Uh, The title of the book is A Paradise Built in Hell. Um, And before we go any further, I want to point out that Jess was great for me to talk to to increase my understanding of trauma. I want to confess now that 
my understanding previously was severely lacking and probably far more binary rather than what I described in the moments of listening to someone that knows a lot more than me about something. But that's kind of how growth works. You don't know something and then someone who does know something tells you about it. It's amazing. I, I do want to say thank you. Like you've actually really expanded my understanding of this because a lot of my understanding previously was like, look, people aren't just jerks because they're jerks. Like, yeah. you know, my, my understanding of people is they're generally pretty decent. Um, and a lot of this kind of does come from the fact that it's hard to get most people to join violent, horrible organizations. Um, that, that's, that's, that's my that, that was the one bright light I took out of my degree. <laughs> <laughs> That's why they prey on people who are disaffected and isolated and alone. They, it's the same thing with cults. <laughs> Looking at the occurrence of trauma in our lives and how it affects us, we can see that after an occurrence of trauma, we look to heal And for many of us, that means going to other people and seeking solace in the company of other humans. Our problems occur when those humans are seeking to exploit us or make use of our pain and insecurities in order to further their political goals. Jess isn't alone in seeing this in her work. I also discussed a similar issue with uh, Garrison Davis, an investigative reporter who has published work with Bellingcat, worked with Robert Evans on his podcast, and reported much of the Portland riots during 2020. He is also extremely well-versed on the rise of the alt-right and other bad-faith actors, and how they connect to many of the people in our circles. I, I don't exactly want to say throwaway line, like hiding one's power level from the normies. Um, yeah, I mean, that is something that Nazis use as a saying. Um, yeah, they I mean because also a lot of the alt right stuff is heavily baked in nerd culture, heavily baked in like uh, pop culture, uh, whether that be like video games, tabletop games, um, anime. It just is heavily ingrained in. So yeah, they they use that. They they use that. Um, what's that? That's like that's like that's like a Dragon Ball reference, I believe. Uh, yes, it is. Yeah. Yeah, I, I actually haven't watched Dragon Ball. I, I watch other anime, but Dragon Ball is too old for me. I'm a child. I don't. <laughs> uh, yeah, but yeah, like the the, the hide your power level thing was. I mean that that is more so like masking your actual Nazi beliefs and you know pretending to be more like a mega person, and then slowly and then once you get more like mega friends or once you're in more you know you know more people with you, you usually online you know talking in like chat rooms and stuff. Once people you know trust you, you can slowly start to introduce kind of more extreme ideas about like immigration and stuff like that um but yeah yeah i mean yeah they, they, they have all these dumb dumb nerdy sayings based on video games and anime yeah like in, in the case of you know someone if you know if there's like an influence in someone's life that's you think is maybe like taking someone down a darker like a, a darker path um but you aren't you aren't like totally sure I mean, yeah it, it depends on what kind of circles they run in um what kind of yeah i mean the the easiest thing to look for is like the the collection of like memes and dog whistles that people use to communicate on the internet all right that's that's like the most tangible thing that we can look at that can actually like describe intent or figure out you know what kind of circles does this person run in on the internet because like where where are they getting these types of memes right that that's the kind of that's the kind of thing that 
is like the most tangible thing because it, it's hard to look into someone's brain and figure out what their intention is. But you you can look at it like the way they're communicating and figure out okay where where did they learn this language, um, and this is this is where this language lives. And where this language lives is also where all these ideas live, and these 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 ideas and these languages are heavily tied, right? So you know, a, f- a few years ago, that was you know Pepe. Um, Pepe doesn't Pepe doesn't really do that anymore. Pepe's kind of been renormalized, and even like tried to be like purposely like purposely like reclaimed by a lot of like the left. Um, but there are a lot of memes and aesthetics on the internet that can give people a way to be like, okay, this person is saying one thing, but the way they're interacting with these online communities is telling me something else. Um, that yeah, that can, that can be that can be like code words. That can be like aesthetics, whether that be like you know vaporwave and skull masks, right? Which is you know a very uh, just. Uh, you know, vaporwave got very popular as like a fascist aesthetic a few years ago. The skull masks are uh, generally got popularized by Adam Waffen, so you, you see a lot of that. Like, quote, it's called like fashwave um, is used in a lot of places. Um, people still use kind of the frog memes, um, like the uh, the uh, Groiper frog meme, which is like Pepe but um, more obese, I guess is technically. Um, so yeah, there is like a list of you know I I I, I have I have like you know big doc files on my computer. I can just like go through like a list of things I look for that people when you know when people are communicating online and be like oh this person may actually be kind of bullshitting. This person you know may actually um, run in some pretty sketchy circles because these are the things they're these are the things they're sharing. These are the jokes they're using. Um, in order to know what this joke means, you have to be familiar with some kind of sketchy stuff. Um, but you know, on the other hand, like the reason why they do these things is because it's hard for normies to pick that up, right? Unless they're familiar with it, it's hard to know. That's why you know there's people like me and Robert Evans and you know countless other people who are remain anonymous and other people who, who do not, um, who dedicate you know a lot of time to exposing these types of things so that people are more aware of them. Um, but I mean, it's it's difficult. It's it's like it's it's hard on purpose. That's 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 why they do this. But this doesn't completely explain Robbie's reaction, either at the table or in the example of the narrative. Also, just because someone posts some dank or terrible memes or jokes doesn't mean they're a Nazi. They might not have learned sufficient empathy or just have a terrible sense of humor. We have to hope that they haven't taken too many steps into that camp and that they can come back. Trauma isn't the only reason our behavior changes. Our responses to social and emotional stimuli are developed over time. Our brains are amazing machines that don't focus on pure data. We're actually the end result of a great deal of social conditioning as well. The term used to describe how our brains can change is neuroplasticity. Connor and I spent some time discussing how our brain can be changed over time and what this can mean. We're learning that the that the brain uh, is is not a a solid and unchanging organ. Um, it learns, develops, and changes its physical structures in response to things that you're learning and experiencing in your life. Uh, we call that concept uh, in our field neuroplasticity. Um, and your your brain is going to experience things uh, and it's going to change as you learn. Certain pathways can be reinforced. Certain pathways can atrophy. Um, 
and 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 lead to um, lead to differences in the way you act and the way you learn. Certain structures inside the brain, because the brain is not just that gray wrinkly thing that you see. That's that's only one part of the brain. There are numerous structures inside the brain that regulate all different sorts of things, from your ability to sense to your ability to produce speech to your ability to feel. Um, oh, uh, down to your ability just to regulate um, trauma. If you experience violence, uh, chronic violence uh, through um, through a significant portion of your life, it can sh- it can it can cause um, a, 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 a uh, it can cause the structure of your amygdala, um, the uh, the the portion of your of your brain that helps. Uh, register your fight or flight response. It can make it more sensitive to external stimuli, like change it so that it does this. So things that the rest of us would be like, oh, that's odd. It can set off a fight or flight response in individuals that have experienced trauma. And you can see immediate leaps to violence uh, or aggression or avoidance um, from, from individuals who experienced trauma. And, and there's, there's, there's so much more. Um, so much more that can impact that. With all this in mind, I want all of us to consider this. There is always the chance for people to change. Our brains can be helped to change. I don't want to say that every individual is capable of becoming someone completely different, as I believe that toxic positivity is a poison in and of itself and extremely damaging. I do, however, want to say that we need to believe and hope that positive change is possible more times than not. However, there are people out there that know how to make use of how our minds can be influenced, and while we've talked about them a little here, what I want you to think about is how they influence people through fear, division, isolating people, and then convincing them they have only one true friend, them. Rebecca Solnit argues in her book, A Paradise Built in Hell, (laughs) got it right now, that for a long time we've actually been separated each other by private interests, having our own space, our own place, our own private universe, which has reduced our natural sense of empathy and connectedness to the humans closest to us on a daily basis. Her book does go on to show that in the midst of a crisis, Humans do tend to band together and are capable of great altruism, even towards those they would usually see as outsiders due to race, class, or religion. I'm not suggesting that we make a crisis happen now. I'm not a supervillain. Don't look at me like that, Jacob. What I'm saying, though, is that we're getting closer and closer to a crisis due to the intense divisions we are seeing in society. Our only way back may be to open doors and tables to the friendless, and give them a space where they can feel welcome, but we also help them with developing a greater sense of empathy and better social skills. Now, to tie all of this together and bring it back to the table, in our last episode, I said that consent or safety tools are great. One of my buddies once told me that he sees them as calibration tools as they set up the social boundaries and expectations for everyone early on, which is a great way to look at them. Now, the safety of everyone at the table is the responsibility of everyone at the table, 
And aside from the tools I mentioned, a large part of this is encouraging and developing a place of emotional honesty. Be ready to tell people that you can't make it, or that a game has to be cancelled because, yeah, you're tired, you can't do it. And be a table where you tell the person that's perfectly okay, and make sure they have what they need. We all come together at the table to have a good time, but we need to invest that time in making sure our table time is working to build connections away from the table. I consider myself very blessed that I get to hang out in person with some of the people I play with. Not yet anyone in the States or anywhere else, but um, hey, maybe one day. It'd be great. I also want to say that when I've had to bring bad news to the table, they've always been hugely supportive. This is important because these connections, these small acts of kindness, careless or intended, are what help us function better as human beings. Face-to-face social interaction, learning to deal with other people, growing in empathy with them, this back and forth of humans, connecting with other humans, and becoming vulnerable in a way that helps us to better engage with each other and ourselves, is what makes a community a great one. My name's Josh, and on Twitter I go by NerdyPeopleDnd. You can catch me there and uh, listen to the um, other podcast stuff that I do. Uh, an actual play with Curse of Strahd, but he's a railway baron, and Better Homes and Dungeons, which I've neglected for the last couple of months to work on this. Um, please take care of yourself uh, and those around you. Thank you.